Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of 1 Thessalonians. So at this point, let's uh, turn our attention to the Word of God. As I've mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, let's go ahead and read together the first seven verses. Paul writes, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us, how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Let's go ahead and read the the next four verses as well and just complete the section here in verse 9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Up until this point, the first three chapters of First Thessalonians have essentially been an introduction. Uh, The Apostle Paul was not shy about uh, his run-on sentences and his long greetings and his long exhortations and his thoughts within his thoughts. He's the perfect example for us pastors these days. And uh, he, for the better part of the first three chapters here, has just really been expressing to the church in Thessalonica how much he loves them, how much he cares about them, how encouraged he is by them, how proud he is of them, even going so far as to really rejoice in the fact that he's received word because of Timothy's visit that they weren't upset with Paul uh, because of the way in which he left the town so quickly. He was very concerned about his quick departure from Thessalonica. He was concerned that because of the persecution that was coming into the area and was coming upon the church, that this young church, it was a matter of only weeks old at the time when he left, that they would have been overtaken by the persecution. And so he was worried. Uh, He truly was concerned about them, about their well-being, about their faith. And for him to get word from them that all was well, and not just well, but that the church was thriving, which by the way is often the case under persecution, that the church tends to thrive when that pressure comes against it. For him to get word that they were doing well, and that in fact they so appreciated Paul's time there, that they loved him and looked forward to seeing him again, that it was of great relief to him. And so uh, throughout this time, even though it's been introduction, we have learned much about what the Apostle Paul has had to share, whether it's about uh, the way in which we share our faith, the type of life that we should be living, the example that we should seek to be for other people, which is based off of Paul's own example and the way he lived his life. Uh, There has been much for us to learn through this uh, introduction, through this greeting that he's given them. But now we come to a place where, and we see this in the first 
last word there of chapter 4 is he says, finally then, this is indicating that he's now transitioning to more of what his intention was in writing them, which is to address things that he knows are happening within the church, to answer questions that they have that came from Timothy's visit. Timothy came back and said, here's some things they're dealing with. Here's some things they're wrestling with. Maybe here's some challenges that are going on in the area, things that may serve to um, to lead them astray, things that may influence them. And so it's now in this transition that Paul is beginning to shift gears a little bit to address some of those things. And so we now come to this place of exhortation. And listen, there's nothing negative really that Paul has had to say about this church. Okay, so I want us to consider here at the very beginning as we start to consider the remainder of this letter here, is that think about his greeting to the church in Thessalonica. It has been entirely positive. The only real concern that he's expressed is simply as it relates to their feelings towards him because of his departure from the area. He has had nothing but positive things to say about this church. So why not at this point just say, hey, church, just keep on keeping on. Keep doing what you're doing. Just keep pressing on and doing the same things. Why isn't that that Paul just simply says that? Well, the reason is, is because as believers, as Christians, as the church today, we being the church, not the building, we are not to settle. But here, what, what, what Paul is going to exhort this church to is to say, don't settle. I don't want you to get to a place where you think you're just good enough where you don't need to grow anymore, where you don't need to grow in your walk with the Lord anymore, where you don't need to pursue Him any further. Remember, this letter, both of the letters that he sends to them, are about living your life in light of the return of Christ. Lest this church, or any church for that matter, or us today, being the church today, think that we've somehow arrived and we can just put it in cruise control until Jesus comes back, how foolish of a thought that would be. The fact is, even as professing believers today, those people who are truly born again, sanctified, true believers, we are still growing. We ought to still be growing. We're still in a process of sanctification. We cannot settle. And this is a problem in the church today. I want you to begin to really consider this right now, not just about the church as a whole, but about your own life and your own walk. Listen, I suspect that aspects of the message tonight might be a bit challenging. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you listening to this message may have a little bit of a thought of, man, where am I in my walk with the Lord? If you do, praise God for that. It isn't my intent tonight to cause any single person necessarily to question their own salvation. Certainly not to think, oh, I must have lost my salvation. It's not my content to make somebody feel as if they're not saved. However, I would say, if the Holy Spirit speaking to an individual, if somebody evaluating their own life, reflecting on the way they're living their life, begins to go, you know what? My life doesn't match this. I'm not growing. These things aren't happening in my life. I've sort of just said, yes, I believe in Jesus, and nothing about the rest of my life has really changed. Then yes, if, there, if that's you, and, and tonight you find yourself going, man, where am I at with the Lord? Well, then praise God for that. You see, that's part of what Paul was addressing here. This was a young church. He was not going to believe for a second that every single one of them was walking perfectly with the Lord, even though he had commended them for the things that were happening, even though he commended them for the fact that they were enduring persecution. He wasn't going to take for granted that there was still much that needed to happen in their lives. 
We considered that last week in chapter 3, the fact that Paul wanted to complete the work that he was called to do with them. He wanted to continue to disciple them. He wanted them to grow in the faith. And you see, there are far too many professing believers today who do not hunger and thirst for God. This is what he wanted to accomplish in their lives. He wanted to get these believers to a place where they were hungry, where they were thirsting for God. We must, as the church today, ask ourselves, ask yourself individually. I want you sitting there right now tonight. I want you to ask yourself. You don't need to say it out loud. I don't know who you're sitting with. Maybe you're alone. Maybe you're with a group of people. But just in your mind and in your heart, ask yourself, do you thirst for God? Do you hunger for God? Do you long for Him? Do you want to know Him more? Again, I'm not coming at you from a place of condemnation, but I want you to be honest with yourself there. And I want you to ask yourself, do I really hunger for God? Do I hunger for His Word? Do I thirst for Him? Listen, I can tell you as a pastor standing before you this evening that there have been times in my life where I know I'm not hungering and thirsting for God the way that I should. Days going by where I'm not even giving much thought. And this is largely in the past, praise the Lord, that more and more each day I find myself yearning for Him, longing for Him more and more. That's a process. That's a, that's a process of growth. That's a process of sanctification. That's a process of coming to know Him more. But we cannot say that we are believers, that we are Christians, and be content just to say, well, I go to church on Sunday and that's it. We don't wake up in the morning or go throughout the day and find ourselves in different situations longing to know more of Him and to seek Him and understand His Word. Listen, there there are many times, even over the last several weeks, and I want to make sure we don't confuse this here, where I've talked about the, the simplicity of salvation. In fact, the gospel itself, the good news, is a simple gospel. It truly is. That's not to demean it, but it's very simple. It's hard for people to sometimes understand. Well, that's it. I just need to just need to believe on him in my heart and, and confess him with my mouth, and I'll be saved. Yes. It's not tonight that I'm suggesting that there's all of these other things that need to happen in your life in order for you to be saved. But I will say, undoubtedly here tonight, that once you are saved, these things ought to be happening in your life. John 6, 44, uh, again, the Gospel of John chapter 6, verse 44, does tell us, this is Jesus Himself who said this, that no one can come to Me, no one can come to Me, unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. Okay, so we understand That the very act of salvation, the very initiation of salvation comes from the Holy Spirit drawing you unto repentance. You coming to Christ to begin with is the result of Him drawing you. We also understand, though, as I've just alluded to, but to give you the specific passage in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Again, it's not my intent here tonight to suggest that that somehow needs to be more complicated. The Holy Spirit draws you under repentance. You respond to that. But that is the part there. You begin to respond. And so lest we think that just because we have uh, uh, confessed something but yet then nothing else in our life happens that we're just okay because we should be longing for and and striving for and seeking after God. Because you see, salvation originates with Him, yes, but it results in a pursuit of Him. Do you understand that here tonight? If you are saved, you must be then in pursuit of Him. Let's look for a moment at Psalm 63. 
And we'll get into Thessalonians, but we've got to consider these things here, even as we begin to look at the exhortation that the Apostle Paul is giving in Psalm 63. Really the entire psalm here, but particularly the first portion of this. Look at this. It says in Psalm 63, beginning in verse 1, Oh God, you are my God. This is a psalm of David. He was out in the wilderness of Judah. He's crying out to God. He's longing for God. He says, Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice my soul. Listen, my soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. You see, he understood what it meant to thirst after and long for God. Elsewhere, we read just a few Psalms earlier in Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, a passage of Scripture we often hear quoted as the deer pants for the water brooks. So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after you. Is, is, that, is that like you? Have you been thirsty before? Have you ever been thirsty? Have you ever longed for, uh, for a drink? You've been outside working. You've been doing whatever in your parts. You've, gone, you've been exercising, whatever it is. And you just need something to drink. And you think, oh, and, and the longer it goes, and most of us are pretty dramatic, we think we're on the verge of death, right? Oh, I need a drink, right? And we, and, and we think we're just about to keel over. And then, oh, you get that water, whatever it is, and you begin to drink it, and you're so satisfied. Is that your heart for God? I mean, you need to be honest with yourself. I was honest with you. There are times when I don't feel it. Where are you at? Is that, is that the way you feel about God, that you long for Him, you desire Him? And if you're saying to yourself, no, that's not me, well, now's the, now's the time to pay attention. It's time to pay attention. This is we, the time is too short for us not to, to, to respond to that and say, Lord, I want that. Think about the Apostle Paul elsewhere, a passage of Scripture I love so much. You've heard me quote it a million times in Philippians in chapter 3. I mean, the Apostle Paul, after he's given his, his resume, he's talked about all the things that he's accomplished, and he's saying this for a reason, not out of pride. He's, 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 building, he's building the church in Philippi up to understand that. He says, here's everything that I've done. And he says in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Why? Yet indeed I count also, verse 8, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, that I may know Him. It's the pattern of discipleship. It's exalt, equip, engage. And it begins with exaltation. And exaltation only happens because we know Him. Because we know enough to exalt Him, to praise Him. 
You see, this world today, they may say that, many people out there may say that they, that they know God. Or that they live their life in a way where they're exalting Him, where they're praising Him, where they're giving Him glory. No, because they don't know Him. Because they don't actually know Him. Because their knowledge of Him runs as deep as the occasional Sunday service, and that's it. Because their soul isn't longing for Him. To know Him more, and to see Him more, and to experience His power and His glory. And so you see here as we come to this chapter, even though he has spent three chapters praising them for what they've done and for what God has done through them and just all the different things that have happened there, not one bad thing as he had to say about them, he still comes to a place where he says, I want you to grow more. And you see for us as the church today, we can't come to a place where we say we're done, that's good enough. We need to come to a place where as believers we say, I want more, Lord, I want more. It's not enough. And so then he says to them in verse 1, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort. This isn't just passive language here. This isn't just saying, well, I'd suggest that maybe you, you do this or you do that. If you're comfortable with this, if you want to go ahead and do this, if you want to give this a try. He says, no, I urge you, I exhort you, I challenge you, I'm pushing you. In the Lord Jesus, that you should abound more and more. Just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know that, well, you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. He's calling them here to remember the things that He had taught them in such a short period of time. He's expressed to them that they've done a good job. I'm proud of you and I want you to do better. You see, even that, and even that today is, is, is somewhat of a thing we, we, we struggle with, this idea of doing better. But the unfortunate thing about that is we tell people they need to do better and they need to do it in their own effort and they need to just try harder at all these different things. But when it comes to this, this is about, as we'll see here, surrendering their lives just more and more to Christ that they may abound more and more. He does the work. This shouldn't make you feel bad. This should make you feel excited because you can have more. You can abound more and more as you give your life to Christ. As he says, abound more and more. If I were to state this differently here, this is Paul saying, I want you to take things to the next level. This is Paul saying to this church, and it's me saying to you here tonight, church, let's take it to the next level. Let's not settle for where we're at right now. Let's get to the next level. Where's the next level at? Let's go there. Let's get there in our faith. Let's get there in our walk with Christ. Again, I would ask you, do you thirst for Him? If you don't thirst for Him, then get thirsty. Okay? Get thirsty. Get in the Word. Uh, spend time with believers. Read a book. Pick one. There's a million good books out there. The, the Bible's the best of them all. But if you need a, a book to help you along the way, to give you a nudge, get into it and begin to allow the Lord to, to stir your heart and to open your eyes to different and new things. Develop a thirst. Fall in love with the Bible. Consider your walk, he says. And how to please Him, how to live your life for Him. What He challenges them here with is He says, You receive from us how you ought to walk and how to please God, for you know what commandments we gave you. He says, Look at your walk, think about how to please Him, know the Word, and live it out. Christian, we've got to consider our own walk. We've got to consider how it is that we go about pleasing Him. We've got to remember the Word of God, and we've got to begin to live it out. Think about, you know, here it's Timothy who, who had played a role in, in ministering to this church. It's also Timothy who had pastor elsewhere, and the Apostle Paul gives Timothy his own instruction. In fact, in 2 Timothy in chapter 3, verse 6, we get some examples of the way in which Timothy is to live. Excuse me, I said that backwards. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. He gives some examples. He's, he's talking to Timothy, and he says, this is, this is how you're to live. He says, you therefore must endure hardship, what? As a good soldier of Jesus Christ. 
No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And verse 6, the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. You see, Paul here with Timothy uses different examples to express this is what your life in Christ should look like. You should be a, a good soldier seeking only to please your commanding officer, the Lord Jesus Christ. You should be like a, an athlete and you compete according to the rules and you work hard and you win the game. You compete or work like a farmer who, who toils and from morning until night working and working because they want to see a harvest. They want it to be good. They apply themselves to it. Christian, this is to be our life in Christ. We've got to give him all that we've got. And so he says here, know the word, live it out, abound more and more, take things to the next level. You've done great to this point. Let's go. Let's take it to the next level. Verse three, for this is the will of God. Whoa. Let's pause there for a moment. What's one of the number one questions that people ask in their lives, especially Christians? What do you ask? What's the will of God? Well, look what it says here. For this is the will of God. Okay, so we should pay attention, right? We should pay attention here. We should listen. We should write this down. Do you want to know what the will of God is? He answers you right after that comma. Your sanctification. Your sanctification. Oh, but I thought it was going to tell me clearly what I was supposed to go do tomorrow. It does. It does. It's your sanctification. It's the pursuit of holiness. You see, there's a colon there after sanctification, which means we need to pause. Let's not go to the next thing quite yet, because yes, he's going to go and he's going to give us five different things that are about sort of fulfilling the will of God. Behaviors, ways in which we are to live in light of Christ's return. But here he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. The next things that he mentions are what our sanctification looks like. But this is it right here. This is the will of God. Listen, the will of God. Listen, okay, I need you to write this down. The will of God is not hidden. It does not need to be discovered. It needs to be obeyed. The will of God needs to be obeyed. Friends, if we're honest with ourselves, we know what the will of God is. It's not about discovering it. It's not about unearthing it. It's about obeying it. God's will for your life is to sanctify you. He does that in a number of different ways. But his goal is, his will is to sanctify you. It's about holiness. I mean, jump ahead even uh, for a moment and look at verse 7. It says there, stated differently, holiness. And that's what sanctific sanctification is. It's about being set apart. It's about being made holy. Now, sanctification, yes, is a, is a twofold process. It happens initially as we are sanctified as new believers, but then it's an ongoing process as he works in our lives. Uh, look at... Uh, let me find it for a moment here. Uh, Jude, verse 24. It says here, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Okay, this is a, a process that's ongoing where Jesus, you know, by the Holy Spirit working in our lives, is able to uh, continue to work in us such that we can be presented faultless. Okay? And, 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 and here's what we need to consider when it comes to God's will for your life. As I mentioned, that it's not, it's not something that's hidden. It's there. It's in Scripture. And it appears to us multiple times. I want you to write these verses down as we take a look at each of them here. Uh, let's look first at, uh, at 1 Timothy. I'm going to be doing some sword drills here. 1 Timothy 
In chapter 2, verse 4, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. This is God's will stated differently in other uh, translations. It will include the word will there. He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, that is part of the process here. We're to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's look at uh, a passage of Scripture I love, Romans 12. Okay, Romans 12, 1 and 2, but specifically, specifically verse 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so it's important for us to consider here, even within this context, that as we want to prove out what is God's will in our life, that we need to be surrendered. We need to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, okay? Here's the thing we have to understand, and we're going to see this here shortly as he begins to address some other things that are a part of these believers' sanctification and it's the same for us today, that if you don't do these things, if you're not proving out what His will is, if you're not living out what His will is, if you're not allowing Him to do this work in your life, if you're not allowing Him to bring you to a place where you understand His word, it's because you're not offering your life up as a sacrifice. And that may be initially for salvation, and that may be on a, on a daily basis, but you're, you're resisting what it is that He wants to do in your life. Let's look also at... Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 13 through 15. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as those as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God. Verse 15, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So there's another one. By doing good, these are aspects of which we do the will of God. Uh, let's look a little bit further in First Peter in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Again, doing the will of God is doing good. Let's look at uh, Ephesians 5.18, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, and so we are, uh, excuse me, in verse 17, let's look at 17 and 18, therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, throughout Scripture, let's look at another one. Uh, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 18. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Listen, I mean, I'm bouncing all over in a lot of these different passages of Scripture, but in each one of them saying, this is the will of God. This is the will of God. This is the will of God. Yet we find ourselves constantly going, what's the will of God? Listen, we start here. We start here by living out, obeying the will of God. Again, the, the will of God is not to be discovered. It doesn't need to be found. It needs to be obeyed. We begin to obey the will of God based off of what Scripture tells us, whether that's doing good, whether that's being willing to suffer, whether that's like we read, where were we just at there? First Thessalonians 5.18, <clears throat> in everything giving thanks, okay, in, in all things giving thanks, everything means all, right? In each of these different things, if we say, okay, I'm going to be obedient to this, I'm going to strive to do this, well then as you abide in Him, as you do His will, He's going to begin to work out all of those other things in your life. What do I mean by work out? It doesn't mean solve all your problems. It means He's going to be going to give you wisdom, going to give you guidance. Go back to Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
For I urge you, brethren, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may test and prove what is that perfect will of God. So as you do that, as you offer your life, as you offer your body, as you're not conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, you begin to live it out and you prove what is His will. And all those other things that you seek to have answers for in terms of, well, what does God want me to do here? What does God want me to do here? A lot of times we are, feel like we are super unclear on some of those things, not every time, but sometimes because we're not doing the early stuff. We're not doing the work in the beginning. And so we want all of a sudden God, like a genie in a bottle, to just sort of give us what we need or to answer the question that we have. And with a magic eight ball, shake it up. And so oh, signs point to yes. When we haven't prior to that been seeking to obey his will all along. I'm saying that's happened sometimes, not every time. Sometimes you're absolutely doing what He is calling you to do. You're seeking to live out the will, and it's just going to take some time. You just got to continue to be obedient and trust. But again, sanctification has two parts, okay? Let's look at an uh, awesome passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians. I'm an encouraging one here, even in Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Paul, you're dealing with a number of different things that they should be doing because we know the church, church in Corinth was kind of off the rails a little bit. And he says to them in, in, in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, verse 11, And such were some of you, speaking to the, the way they were before, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so why do I, why do I look to that verse here? Well, because... Listen, you, Christian, you, it could also be said of you, listen, you were like this. This is the way you used to be. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were set apart. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. And so praise the Lord for that. There is an aspect of your sanctification that has already been taken care of. That's already happened. But it is still an ongoing process that needs to continue to unfold in your life. Like it tells us in, in Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6, where it says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Which means he's still working in your life. And that sanctification, it's still happening. But we need to yield ourselves to it. And so from here then, Paul goes on to consider uh, certain specifics, five in total, that should be about their sanctification, things that should be happening, that they should be looking out for, that they should be seeking to obey here. And so we need to look at these things too and say, okay, if I'm yielded to Christ, if I'm seeking to do His will and, and allow sanctification to happen in my life, then these are the things that I should be looking for. It's not entirely inclusive. These are things that I should be considering in my own life. And notice here, as we go into the remainder of this verse, what's the first thing that he comes to? What's the first thing that he says as he says to them, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, pause. Now here's the aspects of your sanctification. The first thing he goes to is that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Whoa. I mean, this is the first thing here that he goes to. This should tell us how significant sexual immorality is in the life of a believer, uh, how significant it is within the church, how much of a stumbling block this is. When it says here sexual immorality, this is literally translated fornication. We know from the Greek language that this is the word porneia, from which we get pornography. When people come to this, when they come to these statements here, we do everything we can to try and convince ourselves of the various aspects of our lives that may, be, that may be considered sexually immoral, and we try to sort of defend it by saying, well, it's, uh, Scripture doesn't talk about this, or Scripture doesn't talk about this. 
And that's not the case. What we need to understand is that here fornication and sexual immorality essentially addresses any sort of fornication, any sort of sexual act that takes place outside of the marriage union between a man and a woman. And even then, even within the confines of marriage, yes, an individual can still be sexually immoral. And he goes to this first off here because this is important, because this is proven to be the downfall of countless believers, especially of Christian leaders. And this was certainly something that was an issue in this particular time there in the church of Thessalonica. This was something that they were incredibly vulnerable to in the Greco-Roman culture of the day. Just recently in our study of Hebrews, in chapter 13 and verse 4, in Hebrews 13, 4, it said, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. We have to understand this, that sexual sin is very real. And again, unless we want to somehow convince ourselves of the different things or the different levels of that, or that somehow we're not guilty of something just because it seems sort of minor, let's all consider the very words of Jesus and there in Matthew chapter 5. Those stinging words, especially within uh, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus takes certain perceptions and things and just sort of takes the next step to where everybody finds themselves guilty. As he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, this is very real here. And we've got, I mean, and in our culture today, and listen, because of the audience that's watching tonight, I'm mindful of the fact that I can't even go as deep into this as I probably could or should. But I mean, even in our culture today, as people are handing out different things left and right because of, the, because of COVID-19 and all the ways in which people are seeking to sort of serve the masses right now and make life easier for people. You've got some of the top pornography sites, top-ranked pornography sites throughout the world that are just giving out free memberships, that are seeing subscriptions just, just through the roof, people flocking to it as a way to numb their pain. I mean, that's the culture we live in today. If we want to suggest in any way, shape, or form that, we aren't some, that we're somehow better than the Greco-Roman culture of the day, we've, got, we've really got to look at our culture a bit differently. This is real. And he goes on to say, not only should you abstain from sexual immorality, But verse 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You see, this goes back. There's a couple of things we see here, one of which is the fact that why do we expect unsaved people to act like they're saved? Listen, there's somebody out there who doesn't know God, and they're going to act like it. The sad thing is, is when the person who doesn't act like, who doesn't know God, lives by a higher standard of morality than the person who professes to know him. You can go online, those of you that attended the class that I did on pornography. Now look at the numbers. The numbers are available. They don't try and hide the numbers. They put on an annual report. I don't even know how they find these things out. But I mean, some of the top users of pornography are the people within the church. And I don't say that from a place of condemnation. I'm not saying that because I'm not saying every one of those people is just sort of flippant about it and saying, whatever, this is fine. I think the majority of those situations are people suffering in silence and, and fear and condemnation and hiding. We've got to work through that. We've got to deal with that. But the fact is, here it says that you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. So the challenge to us here, the product of our sanctification, the way in which we should live our life in light of Christ's return is the fact that we should know how to have control over ourselves. What does that look like? Well, you know, I thought it, was, it wasn't about my effort. It was about, it was about Christ and it was about what He was doing in me. Yes, listen, it's about both. 
God draws you. He meets you right where you are, but you need to respond. The Holy Spirit is there to empower you, to indwell you, to equip you, to strengthen you, but it requires you to come along. And so what do we do, whether it's this or anything else? I mean, we can make this about sexual immorality or we can make this about anything else. What is Romans? Romans chapter 13 gives us the answer here. And we've all got to take this to heart regardless of what it is in our lives. Romans chapter 13 verse 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So let me ask you the question here, absent or separate from sexual immorality, if it's sexual immorality that you need to put in the blank, put it in the blank. But what is it in your life? This is make no provision for the flesh. It's like the person who struggles with drinking and, they, and they've been sober for a period of time and then all of a sudden they fall off the wagon and they say, I don't know what happened. I was just sitting in the bar and I just started drinking. Well, hey, doofus, what were you doing in the bar? I don't mean to be rude towards you, but come on. Are you availing yourself to accountability? Are you, are you allowing yourself to be, to be are, you, are you part of fellowship? Are you, are you resisting those things? Are you, are you working to not make provision for your flesh because your flesh will fail and you'll fulfill its lusts? I mean, look at that whole passage of Scripture in Romans, in verses 11 through 14, and do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Guys, this is true. It is true for us today as much as it was for them, even more so. Verse 12, the night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Do I stand here tonight before you as one who says, I'm perfect and I do this all the time? No. I stand before you tonight as one who knows that our flesh is weak, who knows that we deal with temptation but as one who's sharing with you the Word of God, who as we considered in Hebrews just this past Sunday, that as I'm sharing with it with you tonight, not my words, but the words of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to obey this. We need to obey it. He says, verse 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Listen, he says, do you know God? Stop acting like you don't. Get control of yourself. And whatever you need to do to get control of yourself, whether that's something that you just need to go, okay, this is out of my life. I've got the, Lord, give me the strength to do that and I, I can do this. Or whether that's you need to pick up the phone and say, hey, friend, you've walked with me in this battle before. Or whether you need to come to a, a group at church and say, hey, guys, I need prayer for this. Whatever the case is, time is far spent. Let's get going. He goes on to say, and listen, he's continued. This is the thing here. Listen, if you're worried about time here tonight, we're going to move pretty quickly once we get past this point because Paul took this one first and just wanted to spend a bunch of time on this. Why do you think that's the case? Because as much as we say or want to say that we don't struggle today with sexual immorality, we know it's rampant within the church. He says in verse 6 that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. In this matter, this isn't a new thing. This isn't something else about defrauding your brother. This is him talking about sexual impurity and saying that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, which means that sexual impurity, whether private or whether consensual between uh, two people, or certainly in the case of something that's unwanted, all of it harms people. Again, I apologize if I'm making anybody uncomfortable tonight, given some of the audiences on the live stream. But here particularly to young ladies here tonight, to the man who comes along and suggests that your way to show that you love him, or the way that you show each other that you love each other, 
by engaging in sex outside of marriage. That scripture right here says that for that person to do that, they're taking advantage of and defrauding you. That's not a demonstration of love. That comes within the confines of marriage. Don't convince yourself otherwise. And even outside of that example, of that relationship, as I mentioned, when it's consensual between two people, still recognizing this is damaging one another, that even in a private capacity, it has a damaging effect on the body of Christ. Because if we are all part of the same body and we're inviting sin in, we could go through so many other passages of Scripture that deal with this very thing, it's going to have a harmful effect on the body of Christ. And it goes on to say, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. You see, in three weeks' time, even before this, Paul dealt with this. He dealt with these things. He, he taught them on these things. And he's reminding them now, listen, the Lord is avenger of all. And so what is he saying here? Sin has consequences. He's saying sin has consequences. So listen, if you're playing with fire, stop. Because you or somebody else is going to get burned. For God, verse 7, did not call us to uncleanness. But here it is again, sanctification, but in holiness. You see, this is the will of God. Your sanctification, holiness, being set apart. Therefore, he who rejects this, listen. Therefore, he who rejects this, this is the exhortation on sexual impurity. This is what he's addressing here. If you reject this, you do not reject man, but God who has also given us His Holy Spirit. We are being sanctified. We're called to be holy and set apart. If you reject sexual purity, you reject Him, and you reject the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, which, by the way, is there to help you against sexual impurity. And you reject the very power of the Holy Spirit that is working in you. I don't want to heap condemnation. This is the Word of God. It's an important reminder for us. Consider, if you will, even from the Gospel of John, in chapter 14, John 14, verse 15, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. This is Jesus who's saying this. This isn't something that we get to go, oh, that's a nice phrase, but it doesn't apply to me. Wow, that must have been hard for the disciples to hear that. What about you, disciple, who is seeking to be a follower of Christ? If you love me, keep my commandments. Verse 24 of the same chapter, he who does not love me, does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Even Jesus himself said, listen, these words, they're God's. If you don't love him, fine, don't keep it. If you love him, keep his commandments. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments, listen, are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit working in you. If you allow Him to do that, if you live a life surrendered. I'm not suggesting that everything is easy. I'm not suggesting that when you come up against temptation that it's just like, oh, peace cake. But if you're continually surrendered, seeking to do the will of God, obeying Him in the, especially obeying Him in the small things on a regular basis, that's called training. That's called practice. So then when you get to some of the big things, you're prepared. Any of you who have trained to do anything know that that's a principle that's true. Why would it not be true in our walk with the Lord and in our faith? Whether it's muscle memory, whether it's military training, you do it over and over and over again so that when you come to some of the big ones, boom, 
You can work through it. But here's the question. Let's go back to the very beginning. Do you thirst for Him? Do you want more of Him? Do you find yourself in a place saying, Lord, I want more and more of you. What I have so far is not enough, Lord. I want more. If that's where you're at now, and then you're seeking to follow Him and hear from Him and and spend time in His Word, well then, guess what? You're building up. You're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when you come to some of these things, it isn't burdensome. It does become easy. Let's move on. Verse 9, but concerning brotherly love, listen, we can move through this rather quickly here tonight for the sake of time, but concerning brotherly love, he does the same thing with them. You have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. There it is again. He says, listen, I don't really need to explain this to you. You know that you're supposed to love one another. In fact, you're doing a fantastic job of it. You are really loving each other well. And I would say much the same thing to the Church of Calvary Chapel Northeast. Guys, you don't need an explanation on this. You're loving each other well. Keep it up. Here's the thing. Let's do it more and more. Let's get better at it. No differently than any of these other things. Let's get better. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. By this they will know that you are my disciples. Why? Because you love one another. Here's the thing. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life. What does that mean? To seek to live a quiet life. This is so countercultural today. This is incredibly just the opposite of what we tell everybody. But this is biblical. You know what this, I saw this translated differently. Somebody paraphrased it this way. Your motivation is to have no motivation. Now somebody right now who's thinking about college is like, amen. Amen. You hear that mom and dad? No motivation. That's not exactly what it means. Okay. This means that you ought not to be motivated to have some super grandiose life and to do all these incredible things and live your life in a way where it's like, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've achieved. Look at all my trophies in the case. That's not what it's all about here. He's saying, seek to live a quiet life. Live a quiet life. And, and guys, you know I harp on this all the time, and I'm sorry. But not enough. <laughs> not sorry enough. Like, what are you putting on social media? Please ask yourself that. What are you putting on social media? Listen, I'm going to take every chance I get to give the public service announcement that you need to evaluate what you're putting on social media. And if it is consistent with Scripture, one, great, If it is consistent with leading a quiet life, great. Okay, keep it up. If it's about bringing glory to other people, encouraging other people, if it's about glorifying our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, if it's about putting Scripture out there, not, by the way, in response, not some sort of like rebuttal that says like, you're going to hell. But if it's just like, man, people need this encouragement today, praise the Lord. But if it has any selfish motive whatsoever, stop it. And if, and, if it, and if it truly comes from a place of just wanting somebody to say, I'm, uh, I'm proud of you or, or well done, then listen, take, take that within the setting of the church. Confess that. Say, I'm really discouraged. And I guarantee you, you'll have a people, you'll have a whole lot of people that are ready to just say, listen, let me pray for you. Let me encourage you. Let me, I am proud of you. But if, if it doesn't fit within the parameters of just seeking to lead a, lead a quiet life, and some of you, you do this really well. In fact, as I was reading this tonight, listen, I want you to know I thought of certain people in this church that do this so well. And I'm not even going to say who you are because that would defeat the purpose. But there are many of you that do this very well. Look at the example of Jesus. So why do we somehow convince ourselves that we should do the things that, that he didn't or wouldn't do? Oh yeah, Jesus did it this way, but you know. And Jesus wouldn't do this, but that's kind of what we do today. Lead a quiet life. Secondly, or the fourth aspect of sanctification here, he says to mind your own business. 
There's not much that needs to be translated here. We know this. You've used this before. Mind your own business when somebody's sort of buttoning into your business. It means you shouldn't do that to other people, right? It means stay in your lane. It means lead your life, lead it quietly, do what you're called to do. Wake up tomorrow morning and say, Lord, I'm going to do your will today. I'm going to surrender to sanctification. I'm going to go out and I'm just going to, I'm just going to lead my life quietly. I'm just going to be a good example. I'm going to do what I need to do today. I'm not going to seek to bring attention to myself. I'm not going to get in somebody else's business. I'm not going to go over here and be a busybody or gossip or bring drama into different places. I am just going to mind my own business. That's what it means. And that's part of your sanctification, Christian. And to work with your own hands as we commanded you. That's number five. He says here, work hard. Paul says elsewhere in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, and everything that you do, do it as unto the Lord, not unto man. And so what is this saying here? If we put all these together here, he says, love one another, lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work really hard. That sounds like a pretty awesome person, doesn't it? Does anybody have an issue with somebody? who just really loves well, who's leading a quiet, peaceable life, who minds their own business, who works really hard. Do you look at that person and say, how dare they? No, you don't. You say, man, I like to be around that person. If it's at the job, you want that person on your team, right? If it's in the church, you want to say, hey, will you help me? Will you do this? Will you do that? That's the only problem with some of you people that do each of these things. You're saying, man, I just keep getting asked to do more and more stuff. Well, praise the Lord. You've got a great example. And that's what it gets to here. Look, that was the fifth thing that he says here really about your sanctification. These things ought to be happening. Listen, he's writing to this church in Thessalonica, right? He's writing to them to address different things that are happening in the church. He's writing to them to continue to exhort them, to continue to disciple them, to teach them. This is how you're supposed to live. Even more so in light of Christ's return, with Christ coming back, this is the way that you're supposed to live. And these are the things that he's telling them. These are very basic things that he's reminding them and teaching them. All towards what end? Verse 12, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. You see, that's a wonderful sort of fruition of living your life this way, is that you have what you need and you're a great example to those who are on the outside, meaning what? Unbelievers. I mean, honestly, let's ask ourselves, how many of you have won people to Christ by butting into their business, sharing crazy stuff on social media, and telling everybody what you accomplished today? How many of you have a list of people that you've said, and praise the Lord, people are just coming to Christ left and right when they're in my presence because of how loud of a life I live, because of all the things that I do, because of the way in which I just insert myself into people's life and tell them they're wrong. And instead, saying, man, I seek to just fulfill the will of God, to sanctify my life, to bring change, to bring growth. I just try to be quiet. I just try to do my thing each day. Yes, led of the Spirit, opportunities there to share Christ, certainly, absolutely. But minding my own business, working hard, being a great example in the workplace. And by golly, I've got a great, I've got a great witness. I'm a great example to those who are unbelievers who look to you and say, man, you're a real blessing to me. You're a real encouragement. You're a real friend. You're a great employee. Christian, the way you live your life matters. This goes back to what we talked about last week. When we say that I don't care what other people think about me. Well, maybe about certain things, but for the most part, care. Care what people think about you. Pursuing God, sexual purity, loving others, leading a quiet life, minding your business, working hard. These are the lessons here that Paul wants to give them before he begins to get into aspects of the end times. 
Listen, let's consider this final verse here as we, as we start to close. In 1 Peter in chapter 2, verse 12, having your conduct honorable. Now, let's, let's do 11 and 12. <laughs> Living before the world, as the title might say there in your book, in your Bible. <clears throat> Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. There it is again. Look at this. Sexual immorality, sexual impurity right there. Abstain from it. A host of other fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. The way you live your life matters. You're a representative of Christ. Friends, I'll close with this. Knowing and doing the will of God begins with thirsting for Him more and surrendering to the work of the Spirit in your life. It's about living a certain way in light of His return. And so I would ask the question of you again, where are you at? Where are you at with these things? Where are you at foundationally, once again, with the degree to which you thirst and hunger after God? Because the fact is, if you're not honest with yourself and that, that isn't there, you're not even desiring to know Him more, then your ability to do any number of these other things is going to be a fleshly effort. And let's remember what Pastor Chuck taught us all. What's begun in the flesh will be maintained in the flesh. And I'll add this, and you'll burn out. But what's begun in the Spirit will be maintained in the Spirit. And as Scripture tells us, and it won't be burdensome. Remember what Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. Right? He didn't call us not to work. He effectively calls us to still go out and plow the field, but with him. And so it begins there. Do you thirst for him? Do you hunger for him? Let's start there. And if you do, then let's begin to truly obey what it is that he tells us. That's it, guys. That's the will of God. We got to obey it. And so let's do let's encourage one another in that work as we continue to seek after him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we bless your name here tonight. We give you thanks, Lord. We praise you, Lord, for you are, Lord, you are an awesome God, an awesome Father. You're seated on the throne above all things. Yet, Lord, we know you meet us right where we are by your spirit, Lord. You bring conviction. You bring challenges, Lord. You bring encouragement. You bring growth, Lord. You change us and transform us, Lord. We thank you and praise you for that. And Father, for each of us here tonight, those watching, Lord, and myself included, Give us a hunger and a thirst for you, Lord. Continue to just grow that within us, Lord, that we would seek after you, follow after you, and that as we do that, Lord, we would have the strength by your Spirit, Lord, to be obedient to your Word, that we would fulfill your will, and that we would increasingly, Lord, be sanctified and victorious over these different things in our lives, Lord, that at the end of time, Lord, we could stand before you and hear those words, Lord, and well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Father, we love you. We praise you. We give you thanks here tonight. Lord, I ask that you administer, continue to Lord, each of those who are with us tonight. Bless them and strengthen them, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.